As we hear the words of Scripture this morning, we listen for the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Today we hear from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of this tempting... He left him for a more opportune time. Let's pray together. Yeah, we pray that as we read about the places where Jesus walked, we might discover something of our own walk with you. And in the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we might discover his faithfulness to us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this sermon series, we are looking at the places where Jesus walked. And today we're going to look at not just one particular place necessarily, but a whole range of places uh, in the Holy Land, uh, some of the places that some of us saw when we were there, and really an ongoing reality in the life there. And that place is the wilderness. We're going to get to a fi- finally to the place specifically mentioned in the Scripture, uh, but really to the whole region and to the whole reality of the wilderness and what it means. Because it, in, in the Scripture, it plays such a, an important role that it almost is another character in the story. People are either going through it or they're not very far from it. Wherever Jesus walked, the wilderness was not far away. And that is a physical reality, but it's also a symbolic one. And it, and, and it kind of goes back and forth in, in the scriptures. The, the, the wilderness represents this place uh, of, ch- of, tr- of trial or challenge, a place that lacks food and lacks water and la- lacks safety. And so from the story of the people of Israel leaving Egypt and discovering their identity as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years, or to Jesus at the start of his ministry going into the wilderness to uh, stand up to trial, to stand up to testing or temptation. They're all basically the same word, trial or test or temptation. Uh, Before he starts his ministry, all of the things that he is going to need to stand on in his life are brought to bear in the wilderness. And the same is probably true for you. Even today, as we think about the journey of grief, it can feel like this, right? A journey through the wilderness, Uh, We face the wilderness in different times and maybe unexpected times in our lives. And so we will go back and forth between that physical reality that we see in the Holy Land and try to understand it better, but also the reality of our own walk into the wilderness. 
and what we find there, that lack of food and lack of water and lack of safety. Uh, Still today, there are people who live in the wilderness in the Holy Land. Uh, There are shepherds who make their livelihood there. They are itinerant. They they wander. They're Bedouins. And um, they have little camps set up in different places and then wander around looking for forage for their animals. So here's a picture of one of those uh, places, a, a camp. And it looks like a little bit of a rugged kind of setup, doesn't it? One of the things you learn very quickly is that Bedouins uh, may or may not be poor. They may look like they're, they don't have a lot, but uh, the, the, the truth is that Bedouin shepherds in the Holy Land have a resource that other people need. They have sheep and goats and donkeys and camels. And um, those are used in lots of ways, not just to eat, but also in ritual ways. Uh, so several of these folks have passed around, uh, down their wealth uh, over generations and are actually pretty wealthy. Uh, and uh, there you see, there are some camels. You notice a couple things. You notice that they have one hump. That's, uh, I don't ever remember which one's which of the one hump or two humps. These are how, how, what are the official names are, but they have one hump. And they're different colors. And you see that they have uh, some ropes across the front of their legs so that they don't run off. So those are tame camels. Um, and I think pretty much not everybody on our trip who went got to ride on a camel, but pretty much everybody did. And if you're expecting to see a picture of me on one today, you're going to be disappointed. Okay, so this next picture is an incredible one. It was taken by Renee May on our trip uh, out of the bus window. Uh, and you'll see some things. You see, what, what do you notice? A very rugged terrain, right? And then you see sheep uh, on the hillside, and, um, and then right in the middle, at the bottom of the, about two-thirds of the way down with the sheep, there's a little figure sitting down. That's the shepherd. You see him? Can you see him? And I, I can't tell the way he looks. He looks like he's on a cell phone. I don't know if he is, but he, he might be. And then down from him, you have a donkey and three dogs, which is a pretty common sight. As we were driving through that area, um, we kind of said, uh, how do the sheep find anything to, to eat at all? Because it just looks like completely barren. And our guys said that it is that way most of the year. But in the wintertime, uh, when it rains, she said that actually that land that is all brown turns completely green. And I feel like that is a test of faith because I couldn't see it. I couldn't believe it from what we saw. It's just hard. It's so hard to imagine. And in the pictures that you see throughout the, the day today, you're going to notice this, that it, is, it just doesn't really seem possible that um, there, anything could grow there. And so as we were driving through the, the, the area, we saw several sites that were like this. Now I want to pull up, pull up a map and show you the region that's talked about in the scripture today. So a few things. On the far right here, you see the Dead Sea, which we'll talk about in a second. And then about two-thirds of the way up in the middle, you see Bethlehem. And then right north of that is Jerusalem. You go all the way up to the top of the Dead Sea, and, and over from Jerusalem is Jericho, and then the Jordan River. Uh, and so we were in that whole area up, up in there, the West Bank, and then um, the wilderness areas that are around it. And um, down there at the south, um, s- sort of in the, the lower part, there's, there's, more, there's more desert. So um, right smack in the middle of that is a place called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Uh, you may have heard of that place. It's referred to in the 23rd Psalm. It is right there, smack dab in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. 
a very arid place that lacks all those resources. So it helps us understand the psalm better. In the very place where we would assume that anybody would pretty much lack everything, what does the psalmist say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or I have everything that I need, I lack nothing. When we think we would lack everything, the psalmist is saying in that place, I have discovered I lacked nothing. And that is the discovery of the wilderness. It is in that place where all of those physical provisions that we usually rely on are taken away, and we discover what still remains. Just north of the valley of the shadow of death, there is a spot uh, up near the top where the Jordan River flows in. You can see it on the map. It's Qumran National Park. Some of you will recognize the, the, the word Qumran, the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were found. Uh, it is also a very dry desert-looking place. So let's look at those pictures. We were, we were there. Uh, this is some of the, basically the rooms where the group of people who lived there, the Essenes, would have stayed. And then there are water-gathering uh, places. And go to the next one, you'll see the, kind of the view from there out to the Dead Sea. So Qumran has a great view of the Dead Sea. Beautiful place, but very dry and arid, you can tell. And then uh, these uh, places where water comes roaring down when it rains has carved out some beautiful places and lots of caves. So the Essenes were um, basically the doomsday preppers of the ancient world. They were there, a very extreme group, off by themselves preparing for the last battle at the end of the world. And part of their mission was to write down the, the Hebrew scriptures. And so they had uh, places that were set aside for them to copy scripture for hours a day, every day. And, and they did that until the year 68 when they were attacked and uh, they were wiped out. So right before uh, they, the, 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 the attack, they put all of those scrolls, 1,500 of them, in clay pots and hid them in those caves. And they remained undiscovered until 1946. And you could, that's how extreme, that's how remote the, the place is. There was one of those Bedouin shepherd boys in 1946 looking for one of his sheep or goats, and he couldn't find it, so he threw a rock up into one of those caves. And I have a picture, I think, of, of the yeah of one of the caves, and that you can see how high it up high up it is, and how hard it would be to get. Uh, he threw a rock into the cave, and it broke a clay pot, and they went in to discover. In all of these caves, there were these writings. And those Dead Sea Scrolls are some of the most intact and ancient uh, forms of the Bible that we have. It, it really transformed biblical scholarship as we looked at what was original, what was early. Uh, nearby, as you've seen already in the map and through the pictures, is the Dead Sea. It is basically a large lake that doesn't have an outlet. Uh, and um, so there, there is nowhere for the water to go. It just evaporates out and condenses the minerals there. The Dead Sea, uh, you can see this picture, is another example. Uh, that's from Qumran of the just extreme nature of the, the area because it's the lowest place on earth. So the elevation of Bowling Green, we kind of got to wondering, uh, looked it up, is 547 feet above sea level. But the Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. So the next picture shows a group of us getting ready to go over to the Dead Sea, and we had the opportunity to go then and swim in it, and um, you float. It is the strangest feeling. Uh, you, you can just float right up at the top and just sit there like you're on a, some kind of 
flotation device. And then uh, they told us uh, because of the minerals that are concentrated in the mud, that if you rub the mud all over you, that it will take 10 years off. And so some of us got right to it and slathered ourselves up. And I think they, uh, there we go. There's a picture of, of that going on. Sarah Grace got in twice and she, we, she disappeared because uh, she's 16. Lots of jokes were had, were made. Um, and uh, so it's called the Dead Sea because of that concentration of minerals. Nothing lives in it. No fish live in it because uh, it is so salty. And it loses uh, some of its size every year because of evaporation. And so with, if something doesn't change, which it could, but if something doesn't change in 75 to 100 years, the Dead Sea will be gone. Pretty interesting. An extreme place. Another extreme place is just north of there in Jericho. And Jericho is the oldest city in the world. So where we're standing here is on top of layers and layers and layers of civilization of the oldest inhabited town, the oldest city in the world. And um, there are camels there also. So I, I think, yeah, so there's a picture of somebody else riding a camel, Heather Appling riding a camel. Um, and this gentleman who is uh, leading that um, fell in love with one of our group members and gave her a, a peacock feather. And uh, we were concerned that she might now be betrothed over there. Uh, this next picture show an 1,150-foot cliff on the other side of Jericho called Jebel Korintal or the Mount of Temptation. And this is the traditional spot of our scripture today, the place where uh, it is said Jesus went from the Jordan River to be baptized past Jericho and then up into the wilderness. This next picture shows a, uh, a monastery there on the cliff. It gives you a little bit of a sense of scale. Uh, it's it's a, a very large place and a very desolate place. Where Jesus spent 40 days liking the, the things that we've mentioned earlier. What? Food and water and safety. And at the end of those 40 days, which are the, the start of his ministry, he is tested by the devil. And that's the devil's role in scripture, by the way, is this testing kind of role. And um, so he comes to Jesus, and the first test is the test of his basic humanness. You're the son of God, if that's the case. Then turn these stones into bread. And it seems kind of reasonable if, on, on the surface, doesn't it? It seems reasonable that Jesus is going to need to eat. At some point, those human things do kick in. In fact, some of the other Gospels will, will say that at the end of the time when the devil leaves, that angels came and attended to him. And he needed food. He needed water. He needed safety. We all do. But Jesus also knows that he, we need something else more. And that's the point. It's not that we don't need bread or that we shouldn't give people bread. But there is something more fundamental than that. There is something that only God can bring. The message paraphrase says it this way. It takes more than bread to really live. This is Jesus's response. Man shall not live by bread alone. The second test is a test of whether the ends justify the means. The devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, this can all be yours. Just one catch. You have to bow down and worship me. And Jesus answers with the first commandment, which is what? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is about our most basic allegiance and then how that dictates the rest of life. The final test is about how Jesus will accomplish his mission. What's his mode of operation? 
the devil, devil says, throw yourself from the temple. And then the devil quotes scripture, which the devil can do. And he will command his angels concerning you and you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answers him with the Bible back. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Those temptations, those tests, those trials are a part of life in the wilderness. They are the, the things that Jesus stands up to not only here, but through the rest of his ministry. And they are the very things that we also encounter. Henry Nouwen, in his book, In the Name of Jesus, summarizes the temptations in a way that I think is helpful. The first, he says, is the temptation we all have to be relevant meaning to meet people's needs, to accomplish things, to give people what they want, perhaps more than what they need. Jesus wants to make a clear distinction. What we may want is one thing, but what we need ultimately is another. What we may want is bread, but the thing that we need is always every word that comes from the mouth of of God. And in other words, there will always be a a pressing uh, kind of challenge, a a pressure to to meet people's needs and to appease them, to pull the audience, to let people's demands dictate what we do. Someone has said, we live in a time where we have swallowed opinion polls. It is just kind of the way we assume things get done. What does everybody want? What's the will of the people? Let's appease that. Let's work that. Let's speak to our base and make it happen. Of course, Jesus is hungry, but he also knows that there is something alone that God can bring to the equation, and that's the thing that we're most hungry for. And when everything else is taken away, what we discover is that that is the one thing that cannot be taken away. That what, that's one of the things we learn in the wilderness, and you, and you probably have learned, and then have to learn again and again, perhaps. But when everything else is taken away, there's something that can't be taken away. That, that sometimes for us, it takes losing everything to discover that we can't lose God, that God still remains. The next temptation, Henry Nouwen calls the temptation we all have to be powerful. And that isn't just a sort of a mass sense of personal power, but to do powerful things. We call it getting things done. Sometimes you sort of have to bend the rules. You have to have the ends justify the means so that you can accomplish something. It is just the way of the world to, to sacrifice or to compromise in just a little way, so that we can get somewhere. Last time I drove on the interstate, I did not stay at 65 the whole time. I broke the law, but made a little concession with myself, right? I've got to get to Louisville to see my son, and God would, of course, want me to get there. He also would want me to get there safely, and that's a whole other conversation. We do it all the time, don't we? We just make little compromises, in the name of getting things done. And it has to do with not really wanting to pay the cost. You can have it all, just do whatever it takes. It's the temptation to achieve great things without paying a great cost. But leadership and life always have a cost, don't they? There's always a cost to doing the right thing or to standing in a place of integrity. Someone has written, leadership would be easy if it was only about giving people what they wanted to hear. But it's, ne- it's never that. Any, any married couple, any parent, any single person, any person who has a job, any person who has a calling, which is all of us, knows that there is an element to which we say yes to 
what God is calling us to do, and then we pay a price for that. There's a cost to it. Leadership is about leading people through change and loss, and people resist that, and Jesus is the epitome of it, and he knows that is coming. The cross is looming in the background. So the devil's offer is a way out. It's the easy way. It's the way of immediate results. But it also happens to be a betrayal of everything he is and everything he's been called to do. The test for Jesus and for us is this. When push comes to shove, will we choose the easier way or the way of sacrificial love? The wilderness is always a test of our willingness to trust God. And we might say we will, but the wilderness has a funny way of teaching us where we aren't as faithful as we thought we were. (laughs) That we may be a little bit like Peter who said, Jesus, even if everybody else leaves you, I will not, and then boom. It's the first one to go down. This is what the wilderness teaches us, that we're not quite as faithful as we thought we were, but it also teaches us something else. It teaches us that God is and that God, Jesus, can be trusted, that when we give up, we learn that the Son of God did not. Final temptation is the temptation, well, to be spectacular. And there is an element to life where we all want that, our 15 minutes of fame. Someone talked about our Israel trip in these terms, like, man, uh, you all have gotten a lot of attention and been famous for a little bit. And I said, if that's how I get famous, I would rather not. But the truth is, we all would love to do life with a little flair, pizzazz, and drama. And it would be easy in some ways, we think, to do it that way. To, to bring that flair and that spectacular thing to our, to our walk, to, to, to walk with Jesus with a little bit of that going on. It's just sort of the American way. When I was uh, at a conference ten, maybe 10 years ago, um, the, it was a Christian conference. It was a leadership conference. And um, I was there with uh, my friend Len, and we had kind of gone to kind of do a, a, kind of to do a time of learning and growth. And um, there's always an element of this in the church and in kind of the, the, these kinds of th- events. You know, there's always a little bit of like, what's going to get people to come and pay the, the price and get their attention? And there's always, you know, you have to have a good speaker. And it's always kind of a, a deal in the church as well. Like if this is, you know, something that just is dreadful for you to come to, you might not come, but it can easily kind of slide over into consumerism and pandering so or, or being too spectacular. And so at this conference, they had lined up this gentleman uh, for an, a sort of a uh, break in between sessions who in the main session in front of thousands of people was going to jump off a high dive into a pool and uh, do something spectacular. It's not exactly jumping off the temple, but it's pretty close when I explain it to you. This guy's job, you've been to water shows and different things, uh, to jump off a high dive into a little pool of water, and that was what he did. Now, this man was in his 50s. He's old enough to know better. He's not, can't have the excuse that he's young and stupid. He should know better. His job is to jump off that high dive, but into a kiddie pool, like 18 inches of water, a little floaty thing. And I thought, I have two options here. Uh, One, I sit here, and this guy dies in front of all of us. And I kind of don't want to be here for that. Or two, he doesn't, and everybody stands up and cheers and says, that was spectacular. 
And I didn't like either option. I've never done this. I, I said, Lynn, I'm, I'm not going to sit here for this, and I'm going to walk out. I have no idea. They cheered. I don't know if it's because he died or because he, he made it. I wasn't there. But it, it reminds me that that, that that temptation to do something spectacular, to get people's attention, is always in the background, and it's in the background of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus didn't come to be spectacular, did he? He came to walk a path that led to a cross. And Paul, in uh, reflecting on that all the, all, several years later, describes that as the real power of his ministry. In fact, uh, let me read this. We've been um, studying 1 Corinthians in our disciple Bible study. And here's how Paul describes the path Jesus chose to take. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its, what's its word? Power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is again. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I skipped uh, the picture, Jim, but let's go back to there's a, the, another picture that we saw in the Holy Land. This is uh, a sculpture. and It is uh, called Homeless Jesus. It is from the scripture where Jesus said, uh, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. It reminds us the way of Jesus is a way of walking in faithfulness when nobody else is looking and without any reward or any attention. And when we take up that way and encounter leadership in that way, then we all have a desire to be spectacular but we're resisting that for something else, not to achieve greatness through one spectacular feat, but to step-by-step step walk with him. And it is a recognition that that walk will take us through the wilderness sometimes. And in the very place where it feels like we lack everything, it is there that we discover that the Lord is our shepherd and that we truly lack nothing even when it seems like God is far away. So as we come to communion this morning, I want to read something and then lead us in the great Thanksgiving. This was something for, uh, posted by a friend of mine who's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. His name is Brian Erickson, and it is about All Saints Day, but it is also about walking where Jesus walks. So let me share it. While Halloween is obsessed with fear, All Saints Day is brimming with fearlessness. It is a day to stand in that strange tension between the reality of grief and the foolishness of hope. It is a day to take courage from those who fought the good fight before us so that we live this life with the same heartful abandon as they did. It is a day to remember that often we don't listen to what prophets have to say until they're gone and to ask ourselves why we are so resistant to God's truth it's a day for remembering all those folks who shaped our lives, all the people who have left something of themselves inside of us. It's a day to remember that the children of God are all connected through time and space, knit together by the Holy Spirit, that there is an unseen cloud of witnesses crowding the bleachers for us, cheering us on in the race we've been called to run, that we are, in fact, never alone. It is a day to confess with our lips, even if we can't believe it yet in our hearts, that fear doesn't have the last word. For he is the first and last, the alpha and the omega, and in his hands are the keys to every barrier between us and life immeasurable. That he decides how it all 
ends. And that makes it a day to sing in the cemetery because we've heard through all the heartbreaking din of this world a distant, triumphant song, and we believe it's true. It's a day to give praise with exclamation points because God gets the final punctuation. Hallelujah. Would you join me as we prepare for Holy Communion and join in the words on the screen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, God of Abraham and Sarah, God of Miriam and Moses, of Joshua and Deborah, of Ruth and David, God of the priests and the prophets, God of Mary and Joseph, of the apostles and the martyrs, God of our mothers and our fathers and our children, to all generations. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup again. He gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves to walk where he walked in union with Christ's offering to us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I invite those who are coming to serve forward as we pray together. Let's pray. God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on your church gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup that they may be for us an experience of the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world by your Spirit, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, in this mystical union and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast then at his heavenly banquet. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, strengthen us to run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. By your spirit, do the work that only you can do as we walk through the wilderness or find that the wilderness is not far away. In this life and on this journey, may we learn to trust you through each of our experiences, and may we enter into the week ahead in that trust so that we might be living reminders of Jesus and point the world to him. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. 
few instructions as you come to communion. We do this in the two sections. So uh, two over here will go out to your right, and these two, you all go, go to your right, and you'll go to your right, and then we have stations here for each of you. If you have an offering, you'll bring that and place that into the basket, and then have your hands open to receive, and the bread will be placed in your hands. You'll take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then receive it. We have folks here, if you want to be anointed with oil, it is a symbol. There's nothing magic about the oil, but it is symbolic of God's care, provision, choosing, and healing. And if you need that special reminder today, we invite you to come and the cross will be made as a sign on your forehead. And then finally, well, and we have gluten-free elements here if you need those. So as you come down the line, just come to the front and get those. Then we also have candles today. And that is for you if you'd like to remember somebody, uh, a saint that has gone on before, someone recent or long past. uh, And you can feel free just to come. And there are two stations. So it might be a little bit messy this morning, but we can handle that, right? And um, just take one of the the matches. Uh, I said I don't know if millennials know what matches are, but... um, we're going to do that. The long stem matches, take them and um, put it into the candle and light it. And then take from the lit candle and light one of the other candles. And then you can take that match and put it in the water. There's two waters on each table uh, to put the flame out. And, um, and so uh, take a moment to give thanks for someone that you'd like to remember today. We believe all of this is God's work. And we simply are able to set the table that he sets for us and that you are welcome. So would you come? with an openness for God to speak into your life today and for you to enter the story that we find in Jesus. Would you come?